The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host. James Fox is off this week, but that's okay because I got you covered as we talk White Sox baseball. That's right. The Chicago White Sox are entering September and they are still playing baseball. Meanwhile, Chris Getz, the assistant general manager of the Chicago White Sox, has implemented a project going on in Birmingham, which is the Chicago White Sox AA affiliate. And it's uh, rather fascinating because all of their good players are there essentially in the prospect pool. So James Feagan of The Athletic was kind enough to join us, gave us a ton of time on everything going on within the organization from Big League Club to the minors and, of course, in Birmingham. But he also wrote a feature piece on Noah Schultz, the number 26 overall pick by the Chicago White Sox in the 2022 MLB draft. The process itself is enough to keep you engaged. So if you haven't read the article, I encourage you to stick around. And after you listen to what James had to say about everything, subscribe to The Athletic, because that's the only reason why you missed the article, and read his article, because it's it's all baseball there. And that's what you're looking for as a baseball fan. We really appreciate you being a part of our family. Future Socks and Socks Machine has been working together all year. And if you'd like to continue to support us, think about, you know, I don't, I don't mean to spend all your money, but think about becoming a Patreon, go to SoxMachine.com, whatever you want to do, fine with me. We are here for you. But if you become a patron, you're a part of our community. You can interact with other subscribers of SoxMachine.com. And you get to listen to this episode, for example, ad-free. So uninterrupted listening. It's pretty good. Consider it if you'd like. Thanks to the Blue Wire Network and SoxMachine.com for making it a great year, despite the big league club really underachieving, to put it mildly. So let me introduce James Feagan. I don't want to keep you here too long. Here's how I wanted to start this interview. I wanted to get the sense of what Feagan has been living over the last four or five months. (laughs) If I was living vicariously through James Feagan, what would it be like? So that's where we start this interview. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, it is James Feagan of The Athletic. 
The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. We are lucky to have James Fegan of The Athletic joining us here on the Future Sox podcast. James, I love talking to you. Thanks always for carving time for Future Sox. Really appreciate the insight. The hardest working member of the Major League Baseball beat. And I'm saying that considering, yes, you have to cover this White Sox team, but also the content in and out on The Athletic. If you're not subscribed to The Athletic and you're a baseball fan, you're missing out, especially if you're a White Sox fan because James is all over it. Now, when we start this conversation, James, like I, you have a great job. You know, you're able to watch baseball every day. But yes, it is the White Sox that you're watching every day. Something that I'd love for you to put into perspective for our listeners is the feeling that you get on your way to the clubhouse after a loss. Can you can you just share that with us this year? Hmm. So, I mean, since he's been released, I suppose I can reveal his identity. But like one day I was walking at a clubhouse and it was a lot better part of the season. And Ryan Burr was just like, not much fun covering a team when nothing's working, right? <laughs> it's like... Yeah, man, it kind of stinks. I like talking to people about, I love talking to players about like how they made things work or how they improved or how they, you know, because it's, it's such a, even, even covering Ryan, like to be kind of an up and down reliever in the majors took so much refinement and development and trying to figure out what worked at the major league level and diving into those stories is a lot of fun. And that's kind of what I love and live to do. A lot of the more stuff that you cover a major league team, you do it because you have to, because it's the story or it's, you know, it's what everyone's kind of consumed with. You know, people want this team to win. So that's what they're kind of, they want to know why things are not working the way they are. And just kind of <laughs> quizzing people day to day, especially at this point in the year, um, when it's kind of the same things. They've already told you what the issue, we know what the issues of this team are. And so doing it over and over again, it's, uh, it's just kind of a little repetitive and, you kind of know there's not necessarily going to be new stuff overturned and you're just kind of asking the same questions to get the same answers. And sometimes you're going post game to talk to Tony who wears his heart on the sleeve, every post game uh, press conference after losses, you know, that sometimes it's just going to be, Hey, you got to ask about the decision. It's probably just going to get a blow up answer, but you got to do it because it's your job. But also, you know, some days you, Maybe this is going to be the post game where everyone's going to blow up and then say all the things are wrong with the team, or or speak frankly in a degree they never had before. And or maybe this is going to be another game where they say, uh, "We got, we know we got to do better. We know we have to be more consistent. Try to come back tomorrow. Uh, keep our heads down and work." Type of thing. So it just kind of gets dreary and 
not as interesting as it usually does. And the one thing I would say about this job, why it's better than all my other jobs I've ever had, is that I'm not bored. Um, <laughs> it's not. I, I've covered um, press conferences where they're talking about new roundabouts uh, and streets in Mishawaka, Indiana. And this is even a seven-two loss is more interesting than that. Uh, but this this can get a little repetitive, and also just you're talking to people who are unhappy about why they're unhappy, and it's uh it's not the coolest thing that is possible when covering baseball. Right, and w- with that said, you know the responses from the players, and they're saying all the right things because what else are they going to say? They can't roll over and and quit. They're saying you know, we got to believe we're pulling together. We got to show it. We know we have it, but we just got to show it. There's only so many times you can say that, right? Until it's like, okay, here we are again with the lip service. But what you mentioned with Tony, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine what it's like having to go into the clubhouse after a loss, knowing that you've got to pull something from the manager and he is just seething and you could feel, you know, the steam coming from his forehead after a loss. So, so terrible. So my question with it, when you're covering this team now, you know, post COVID, what are some of the things that jumped out to you that were different from when you covered this team under protocol, pretty strict protocols where you're, you're separate via zoom versus now you're in the clubhouse having conversations with different people every day and even having conversations off the record about things. What, what's that dynamic been like? I wouldn't say it's been a, a ton more revealing just being, it seems like you get to know Tony a bit more uh, talking to him directly uh, and certainly have a feel for when things are going to blow up. Whereas like you couldn't really t- tell what his mood was from the zoom room. Like a lot. I don't know if anybody's really cracked the code of why this team is um, doesn't seem like it, it works uh, yeah. by being there in person and then otherwise. I, I would say that it's tough to say like, oh, I, this was the moment I knew things were wrong or this is when I had a sense that things weren't right without it. Like it's tied to the fact that the results aren't there. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're losing games. I think there's a lot of stuff that has happened or things have indicated or people have kind of like rolled their eyes at that, you know, you just think is you know, even those were things that maybe even happened last year as far as the decision making and people thinking like, wow, that's pretty goofy, but they won 93 games. So I, I don't know how much, you know, everything that you kind of observe um, is divorced from the results. Like the clubhouse is bummed out and quiet. And it's usually because they lost, like uh, they've lost more games than they won. So you're, you're not seeing the vibes. You're not seeing the fun. You're not seeing like the connectivity or the, uh, you know, uh, across the clubhouse conversations of the way you would during a winning season because this isn't a winning season. It's a deeply as disappointing season as any of us can remember because this is a team that was expected to do a lot more and, and isn't. I would say the 2017-2018 teams were a lot more fun because a lot of guys getting their chance and not really having a lot of expectations and not really, not every loss was a crisis. Like, like we weren't questioning your, the direction of the franchise because David Holmberg or Mike Pelfrey got lit up. That wasn't supposed to really mean anything. Whereas this one is very much like every conversation is trying to establish the identity of we're a good team. We will go back to normal. That will show itself with the, while the results continue to pile up against it. I don't mean to keep staying on this topic, but there was this one example. What, the White Sox? <laughs> There's an example post game. One, uh, I forget where, but. There was video that surfaced on Twitter where Tony is just hanging out. Actually, it was on the NBC Sports Chicago postgame show, and they typically broadcast like 90 seconds of Tony's presser on the postgame, and it was a video of Tony hanging out in the manager's office, pants undone, just relaxing, and 
answering questions to you guys without standing behind a podium and, you know, cameras in his face and microphones in his face. It just seemed more natural for Tony to answer questions about baseball in that environment versus just the strict, hey, play it by the book. You're responsible for standing at the podium here with obviously um, the aesthetics around you. Did that hit you similarly? Well, they certainly... um... The podium, like, policy of him coming out, that happened after that, right? They said that was not the image they wanted to continue to send out. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I think it speaks to just how, like, drained he is after games. Either either win or, like, wins, he'll be, like, relieved and be happy, you know, some of the times. But, like, the White Sox have played an inordinate amount of high-stress games even when they win. So, usually there, there's a level of, like, mental exhaustion because he's just sweated out three or four high-leverage innings in a row uh, and it's late at night or he's just, you know, the way he is after losses, which is just very upset, very just like emotionally uh, like on, on kind of thin ice of just ready to kind of be done talking to us or just maybe snap or, or kind of say like whatever he said to Daryl in Kansas city of, uh, you know, if you want to write, we're lousy, say we're lousy type of thing. Like you, re- you realize very acutely, especially with this kind of stuff that triggers those responses, that it's not about you as a reporter or something that he said to spark it, um, but more just like he, he really wears the losses and he's really upset and they've been really been piling up this season where he's just saying that he's pissed off after games uh, repeatedly. But this team has played draining baseball, uh, which I think the, the fans have perceived and I would tell you from my observations kind of is seen inside the clubhouse as well. It's exhausting watching this team, and I'm sure it's exhausting covering this team. And I feel like we've watched three different seasons unfold this year. It feels like the Josh Naylor walk-off happened three years ago. So, James, let's move on to what really you're here for, and that's away from the big league club. And Let's focus on some of the stuff that you've been working on, which includes an awesome article that you put together on Chicago White Sox first-round draft pick Noah Schultz this season, and we'll get to that uh, in a minute, and you can go to The Athletic, go to theathletic.com, and the title of the article is How the White Sox Dream Big and Settled on First-Round Pick Noah Schultz. But before we get to uh, that article on Noah Schultz, I wanted to talk to you about the future that, you know, the, I guess the immediate future, looking ahead to next offseason. And then we're also going to talk about Project Birmingham, that we expect a lot of the prospects who are a part of that group now may have a chance to make a name for themselves down the road next season. When it comes to Jose Abreu's status on the team, obviously we are well aware of the significance of same position players and first base types in the outfield right now. How much does the decision of bringing back Jose Abreu weigh on the front office as it relates to what they have to do with guys like Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets and even Jake Berger as they prepare to try to compete again in 2023? It weighs a lot because it it really dictates their flexibility with some of these pieces that they've identified as core long-term pieces that they refuse to really entertain moving on from uh in trade or have just marked as like their franchise tent poles um i think you know obviously gavin sheets has a prominent role just as being like kind of the really um one of the few left-handed hitters um but you know the osmani grandal is the biggest free agent contract signing of all time and you know part of it was the idea that he would he's such a good bat uh that he's going to first base dh when he's not catching um that that saps away from that flexibility you know andrew vaughn i think He's a first baseman, uh, to, to say it the least. 
Um, and Eloy Jimenez, especially right now with his, his leg issues, is, is DHing a lot. So you have so much of your future is tied up in trying to have a little bit of this first base DH flexibility, which, of course, Abreu as this everyday, literally everyday first baseman takes away from that. And at the same time, you're talking about, like, hey, this bad offense, what if we took away its best hitter? Would it be better? Like, So it's a, it's a scary thing to kind of make this leap of just saying, you know, well, we need to be more flexible, so we're going to get it rid of, or we're going to let him walk, or we're going to move on from him. Um, but also, like, I think there's a lot of this season where you're watching this offense and you're thinking, like, how bad would it be without a Abreu? Because, like, he's won by any kind of overall measure. WRC Plus is my preferred He's the best hitter on the team still, um, even without, you know, t- even 20 home run power. Uh, he's the best hitter on the team. So I don't think it would it, it would be a lot of like secondary moves and adjusting that you would have to make to um, rework your roster um, to have the same offensive heft without him. And say, even if you do move Vaughn or Eloy to first base DH and kind of free up your corner outfielders and have to go after him. You now maybe have budget room to do it a bit more by not re-signing Abreu to whatever he demand. I imagine something in the fifteen million a year territory or or north of that. Um, but you're letting talent kind of walk out the door to agree that I don't know if you can purely replace on the open market with money uh, for a team that's never really shopped at the top of the market for corner outfield before. And I don't think you're going to get somebody who's as good as Abreu offensively to play in the outfield corners for even the price that you would have to resign Brady for. It'd probably be something around a $20, $25 million a year type of player. And, you know, they're already at the upper limits of what we would probably conceive of being a the budget they would get from Jerry Reinsdorf. So I don't know if the path to letting his favorite player walk out the door is, is that feasible, let alone if it's even an option. If, you know, Brady sounds more and more like somebody who feels like he can play physically beyond the season and certainly has the on-base numbers to suggest that he should. If he wants to come back and Jerry wants him back, that might just make it a, you know, fait accompli beyond all our positional flexibility, uh, you know, talk and pontification. It might just be meaningless. All of this doesn't matter as long as Jose Abreu wants to play for the White Sox. He continues to produce the way he's done across his career and essentially regress to his career average at the end of the day, no matter what. And the fact that you know, I, position redundancies, who cares? The guy is a White Sox for life. I just can't get past that idea compared to the alternative. Like, I just, I don't know if Jose Abreu is ever going to not be a White Sox. And like it or not, he, he's in the way of a lot of important pieces that the team has currently. But at the same time, like you elucidated very well, yeah, the, the production is there still. So, how are you going to replace that if you decide to move on? Yeah, like, like how much of that is his fault if he's just going to continue to be here and outperform all the guys that you are lining up to <laughs> replace him? Like, uh, yeah, he, he limits your flexibility, but maybe you know the, the guys who are not as good as him or not hitting as well as him are the ones who need to be adjusted and moved around in, in his wick since you, know, you can make an argument that the contention window doesn't look that like it's going to be easily open much longer than Abreu's career will go anyway. James, when it comes to Project Birmingham, this is something that has never been done before from another organization's perspective. And maybe we'll start here. Chris Getz decides to 
compare the core, we'll call it the core, a lot of top 30 prospects, even some who are just outside the top 30, participating in Project Birmingham, where they're playing in double A across the final month of the season together. And I know that's important. When it comes to the landscape of talent across minor league baseball at this point, how much do you think the reduction of short season affiliates have impacted the talent pool now that play in low and high A versus where it was in the past? Because I'm just thinking, you know, these players with limited experience are likely to have a little bit more success or at least stand on their own feet better comparatively than what we're, we've been used to before due to some of the regulations in minor league baseball. Am I off there? So I think like maybe a small, like un, probably at least unex, underexplored thing by me when I wrote the article was that in creating this like prospect super team, he is kind of weirdly recreating Great Falls at Kannapolis with all these like ACL players or recent draftees that you'd probably send a short season back in the old days that he now gets to send to the the, the A-ball affiliates that he's suddenly evacuated in a, an unusual stance. And the, these guys going to get to play or get a taste of you know, low-A baseball in a way that you used to have happening at Great Falls. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of dynamics in place beyond just creating the kind of super team or getting the feet wet of, um, you know, some of your top a ball prospects who, you know, maybe even in a normal circumstance you would want Brian Ramos to get a little taste of a ball or Luis Mancis to get a little taste of double a ball at the end of the season. So yeah, I, I think the consolidation probably definitely is part and part and parcel of this. And how do you feel like this is being, taken in by the league do you think other organizations may follow suit in doing something similar i think they're definitely interested in how this goes um i think there's some thought of like well this is, is this a little like small way to both uh, deal with you know players who are kind of frustrated or want to see some progress or want to see some promotion or want to get a taste of uh, the higher levels and feel like they're being slow paid a little bit um is, is this a way to kind of give them exposure without really like throwing them in the deep end too much um, at the end of the year, or is this is this a little bit about um, maybe something that's kind of flukish based on the results of like the nature of their system, where it's not super deep, where you really could consolidate all your meaningful prospects on one team uh, for a short period of time and, and just kind of focus all your rovers on there because it's just not this like mega deep system, um, especially the AA affiliate post some promotions. So I, I think there's a lot of scouts who will. Pro scouts are obviously just biased from talking to them because all of them are thrilled that they only have to travel to one affiliate now. But I think there's a lot of interest. I don't know. It's too soon to say if it's a success or what impact it's having to say that everybody's going to follow suit. But I know that everyone I talk to is like, that's that's interesting or that's uh, that's wild. I don't know if that's going to work. Or you know, some of the guys who are low A, <laughs> you'd expect them to kind of get hammered uh, playing at the, the higher level. So uh, I, I think everybody's kind of watching it with, both eyes open. What do you think the White Sox want to get out of it just in general? I know this is just a very broad question, but we're seeing, you know, young players, Colson Montgomery, for example, first full professional season following his draft selection last year, and he has been tearing it up. But again, like this is an example of the White Sox pooling together their best talent and allowing them to play at a high level. What do you think the White Sox want to see as a result of this project? Just talking to Colson, that was a useful example of 
this was somebody at the end of the first full season who was probably you want to start pumping the brakes with as far as like their workload um, or West Cath is, you know, in a similar spot as far as just workload and his first time playing a full season where you kind of already want to dial them back and here's an opportunity to step back and make them work with the Rovers uh, even more than they would uh, or, you know, have the same effect with basically all your top prospects. I, I think in general, instructional league tends to work on really low level guys. And so to have that same sort of dedicated piece and time to, you know, your top prospects who are maybe more of the double A type who, who wouldn't really necessarily be um, candidate A for instruction league. I think it's part of it, but you know, also something I heard from a lot of prospects who took, who went to the alternate site, which is kind of what the model for this was, is that they felt like they really got to find out what they needed to do in a condensed amount of time, what separated them from major leaguers. So that can't be completely replicated because you don't have like, say, Gary Crochet uh, throwing bullpens right next to you like you did at the alternate site. But um, this is the type of situation to say like, here, here's what you need to work on the off season. Here's what is needed from you to reach the next level, especially for someone who hasn't played a double A yet. Um, it's, it's sort of like instructional league for a, a graduate level course rather than just guys who are fresh out of the draft, which is usually what you see in Arizona in October. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And, uh, it makes sense to me. You mentioned Garrett Crochet. I'm going to touch on him in a little bit. So thanks for the reminder, but here's another question for you regarding project Birmingham. Justin Jershley has been a part of the organization since he was drafted as a player back in 2012. And he's managed a number of affiliates already, and he's the manager in Birmingham. What do you know about Justin Jershley? And is and regardless of the future of Tony Larusa, do the White Sox believe Justin Jershley is a future big league manager? Um, yeah, they 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 have that very high opinion of him. That's definitely some part of it being housed in Birmingham. Um, it's not like if Justin Jershley was managing Canapolis, they would have, you know, sent all their prospects to low A, but yeah, definitely part of their comfort with doing this is that Jersey is there. I think a lot of guys can get tagged as future manager um, and they definitely mean it, but it doesn't mean there's a, you know, direct path to succession mapped up for him that where he's like going to be manager by 2025 or something, just because they say he can be a future manager. I think they know that's possible for him, but I, I don't know if it's their, I, I struggle to see while they are in their, so to speak, contention window, um, handing it over to anybody who doesn't have like necessarily experience or major league experience. And I think just in general at this point with the hiring around the league, the way it's gone, I, I, I struggle to see somebody getting as often the jump from minor league manager to major league manager. I think it's the next step for him would probably be being on a major league staff in some portion and then be able to graduate from there. I don't think you would just go from a wall manager, double a manager, triple a manager, major league manager. I feel like we don't see that as often anymore. And I think it would be more towards a shift back to a rebuilding cycle where you'd see them hand something off to a first time manager or a very um, young, less experienced manager. Like, like Jershley is still at this point in his career. And Jershley did turning 33 soon. So just for perspective's sake, you know, 33 years old and uh, no major league experience, although he's been in part of the organization. So he's got history and understands how things work at the uh, minor league level. So that's an interesting nugget to keep in mind. Now, James, you did a great job. We talked about it briefly uh, on the Noah Schultz article, the feature that you wrote for The Athletic. And Noah Schultz, first round pick, number 26 overall in 2022 out of high school, 
a left-handed pitcher that has projections. You know, some are comping him to Randy Johnson as his absolute peak ceiling. If everything all you know goes well, that's the type of player that the White Sox have in this left-handed pitcher. And you, in the article that you wrote, you mentioned an instructor, a local instructor, Mark Sheehan, and eventually working with J.J. Lally, who is a White Sox scout, uh, all kind of came together for the White Sox as they evaluated this player in Noah Schultz, who they ultimately took. Could you just describe the timeline that sort of led the White Sox to say, yes, this is the player that we want? Well, at age 16 is when... Um Lally put him in as a group one uh, prospect, which is basically potential first rounder and started tracking him on that path. I believe that was around about the time he was put on the White Sox area code scene, which is generally just a, you know, kind of a showcase circuit uh, team that um, you do locally around the country where you put potential draft prospects on there. It, it doesn't necessarily wed a player to a team, but you know you, they tend to play for the team that's in their area's area code team. So Lally running the White Sox area code team is tracking him as a result of that and is following him, obviously, for the next kind of couple of years that he's playing in high school, he's pitching a perfect game and all the other stuff that you know the top high school recruits do at this point. So to the stage of the story that they, the White Sox has set is that, you know, one season of Noah Schultz's high school career is more or less wiped out by COVID. And, you know, the senior season, which sees him a pitch around six innings, I believe, is mostly wiped out by Mono. Um, he comes back. Once he's cleared to do it, Sheehan had a little bit of misgivings about him pitching, trying to pitch so soon. Uh, coming off of Mono, there really wasn't much time left in the season, but his team was about to go to the playoffs, and he wanted to kind of be part of that. And they, you know, he got clearance to throw physically, but he clearly was not kind of in sync. And so here's where the stories based on your feeling about him as a prospect maybe diverge. If you're, you know, skeptical of this big gangly high school arm, you saw him pitch at the end of the postseason, um, be really inconsistent, deal with walks, uh, not go many innings, getting razzed by opposing the rival high school team's fans, and just not looking a primetime player. And that's where you probably file a report. Uh, that's, you know, big lefty got velo, got a big slider, but, you know, a changeup isn't there yet. Command isn't there all over the place. Velo is inconsistent because he's young and he's super skinny and he's basically taller than any starting pitcher you see in the majors at this point where the only physical comp you can actually give for him is Randy Johnson because there's no other starters that tall left-handed <laughs> who throw from this low slot that you could possibly compare him to. So you wind up compare him to a Hall of Famer just because that's the only one he looks like. Whereas from the White Sox perspective, they continue to follow him after that. They're like, yeah, we understand why you looked inconsistent. We still like his potential. Uh, he's still on our board, uh, but we're a little uncertain. There is a, a push to do college pitching in the draft room. You know, some of it being like, you know, we're hoping to still be in our contention window two, three years out from here. Let's get a college pitcher who can potentially help us during that you know time slot. But Schultz, who's represented by Boris, is still looking to maybe boot, is you know getting the field of market and looking to boost his value. Um, so he pitches in this prospect league that his Mark Sheehan, who he's trained under for since you know duration of his high school years, is connected to. Refer, puts him on this uh, team called the Illinois Valley Pistol Shrimp. The this league, this prospect league, has been around for decades, but. And it is generally composed of JUCOs and, you know, maybe 
you know, underclassmen college uh, players. So by the White Sox perspective, better competition than even he was facing in high school. And he comes back and he's, he's, he's looking better. He's throwing more consistently 94, 97. He's, you know, throwing for strikes more consistently. His slider looks just as overpowering dominant. There's no scout, even one that hates him that doesn't think that it's not just a murderous slider. That's why there's even like the detractors would say like, yeah, he can be a reliever because he's, you know, throws upper nineties from the left side and he's got a wipeout pitch. So it's not a, not a pure diss to call a, a high school prospect a future reliever because that's, that's pretty hard on its own. But the White Sox believe that, you know, he's showing feel for a changeup because he's always throwing this changeup with a lot of movement because the whole thing when you're a high school player and you throw in the upper 90s is that it's really hard to throw a changeup because that's basically the only pitch that your competition can hit. So it's really hard for them to develop that. Because of that, Noah Schultz developed a changeup that's a lot more about movement than about velocity separation because velocity separation in high school is not effective for the strange reason that it is. So they believe that being able to follow him longer, the fact that he was local, they were able to kind of keep showing their, having their local scouts there. You know, Mike Shirley sees him uh, in this prospect league, not just, uh, you know, the cross checker sees him in the prospect league, their assistant scouting director sees him in the prospect league, not, not all just JJ Lally. Because of their closest to him, they feel like they're able to follow him a bit more than every other org, including some orgs that just dropped off after his high school season. And we have this view of him. We've seen him consistent, healthy, separated from mono and we think this is a first rounder now so that's basically how they get to the point of picking him now they obviously were the step beyond everybody else i think what i heard after the pick was that other teams were like if he had slipped out of the first round knowing he had a strong we knew he had a strong vanity commitment we knew he was backed by boris but we think this would have been a guy that we would try to maybe move some money around and you know do a version of you know, Jared Kelly, uh, when the White Sox kind of punted their later picks to put everything to a big overslot second round pick or, you know, the bigger other big comparison, bigger, bigger bonus, but similar dynamic was what, what the Rangers did with Brock Porter of kind of putting everything around their fourth round pick and signing him for way over slot. Other teams thought something like that probably would have happened with Schultz if he had slipped past the first round. But the Sox were not only able to say we're going to commit a first round pick for this, but secured him for basically not much more than the full slot bonus. So it winds up just being a typical first rounder for them, not something that they have to really reorder their draft around. But with the fact that they're able to take him, willing to take him in the first round, that they had the can bigger bonus pool to really offer than other teams that might have if they're trying to move stuff around, uh, made things work for him. But there's some reaction of, wow, that's a reach. Wow, that's a really big ceiling pick uh, from others in the industry. And there's some reaction from other teams. They're like, damn, they were able to go one level beyond what we are already going to try to do because we thought this was a chance to steal a high ceiling arm ourselves. It's a divisive pick is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant just to hear the process and what you brought up a number of things there, but let's keep it to what JJ Lally said. I saw it in your article. Um, he, he mentioned a quote from Kenny Williams talking about, you know, don't be afraid to fail. Give me a high ceiling player. Um, and if it works, it's that's great. But if it doesn't, it's OK. And then also later, Ethan Katz gets involved and said, like you mentioned, I love the low arm slot. Mike Shirley's in his third draft. He just completed his third draft class. What's the difference now? in this regime when it comes to the draft and scouting and developing 
Um, Mike Shirley has gone every which way in the first round over three years at this point, which is which is fascinating. Position player, whether it's prep or college, and he's not afraid to take an arm like Noah Schultz. Uh, do you see an improvement in that room, considering you got guys like Ethan Katz, who's communicating with Mike Shirley and, and Kenny Williams, offering input, saying, yeah, let's get the highest ceiling player? I mean, I would say that Kenny has always been involved in the draft very heavily. I would say maybe there's a bit more being able to communicate with the major league pitching coach and really see what he wants and what he would do with it stuff-wise than probably there was before Ethan Katz. I would say that the commonality of of the three years of Shirley is kind of searching for ways to run an end around uh, the league. Uh, you know, taking... Garrett Crochet, where he did, you know, there obviously was some teams, you know, right behind it. They're prepared to do it, but it was kind of based off this idea of everybody knows he can throw super hard and has a plus slider, but we think we've seen some late change of development that boosts us to say, this is a future starter. We're going to take him 11, uh, you know, full slot uh, that allows them to really like make an edge or the idea of seeing Jerry Kelly fall based on the big, you know, ask for signability and thinking we'll be the team that does meet this ass and does do 3 million and we'll rearrange everything to do in the second round. What I kind of described with Noah Schultz here. I, I think it's the sort of, we're going to hunt for value. We're going to try to find something that isn't seen um, by maybe the rest of the industry, or maybe they missed this, or we're going to find some, something that they didn't get a chance to, to see some, we're going to look for some benefit that we found from maybe an extra look, being advantageous with our, our budget pool resources to really just throw everything down, searching for this big high ceiling pick uh, that we could possibly get. Uh, Wes Cass would be another example. Um, his proximity to the White Sox spring training complex means like every executive just watched him so much uh, down at the stretch for the playoffs uh, that he was playing because his team won the state title in Arizona. Um, the, 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 there's kind of a commonality of looking for, there was a lot of personal connection to Colson Montgomery with the, with uh, Shirley being from Indiana, he had heard about him and had a lot of confidence in the makeup beyond maybe what the regular average team would. So it's a lot of searching for those types of edges type of thing. And that can be exciting because, you know, it's proactive. It's not just, you know, picking, you know, whatever the top ranked player is off the board uh, when your slot comes around. It's a lot of searching for stuff. I think other teams that are skeptical of it, of it say, scouting is really hard and you do yourself a disservice when you try to think you're smarter than everybody else. Um, generally it's, it's really hard to see things that nobody else sees and um, trying to, you know, dunk on the world every single time is going to lead you to some, some bad results and some overplays as well. So I, I see aggression. I see a lot of guys where if it works, they kind of get to tout that over everybody forever. But if they don't, it's going to be like, this, this is what you, this why, why did you think that, you know, Jared Kelly was going to be able to develop a third pitch and a slider and his body would project well when nobody else did? Why did you think Garrett Crochet had a sh- change up when nobody else did? Why did you think you Noah know, Schultz, uh, you know, his frame could fit in a rotation and he, he's going to be a six foot nine starter when nobody else is a six foot nine starter and every other team thinks that's really hard to make six foot nine guys a starter. So it, it, it's, it's that sort of dynamic. How involved is Ethan Katz in the organization in terms of, recognizing what they have outside of the majors and their 40 man roster, to be quite honest, 
as well as how you think he's done acclimating to being the White Sox pitching coach over the last couple of seasons. Like, uh, you know, would the prominent example be like um, he, he was really high, he really thought he could make things work with Vince Velasquez? I suppose like he, he definitely has input and, you know, something that I think a lot of coaches have said is that they get asked about potential acquisitions and how they would work or what they think would profile well with it. And so I think Ethan is pretty involved in terms of saying when he gets approached about potential major league acquisitions of looking on video and giving input about what he would fix and what he would tweak. I think kind of the like Rodon was an obvious example of that as far as re-signing him was already kind of seeing what obviously last season, seeing what he's able to do with it. And when they're kind of doing their uh, FaceTiming and already kind of fixing his delivery, I think it was a lot based on that. So obviously that can be an aid when you have a really more direct and concrete idea of somebody who works really well with video and um, showing what you could do. I would say Velasquez is an example of um, them kind of overextending it because they knew that he was not going to have as much time with to work with Velasquez to really install changes in a meaningful way by the time that the you know, season started. And, you know, talking to Vince, talking to Ethan, what they've said over and over again was like, yeah, we did not get enough time to really hammer out what we wanted to do. So I, I feel like they probably leaned on it a little too hard um, this year. And it's possible to kind of, you know, be over-challenging. Or, or I think there was parts of definitely the Don Cooper tenure where it was kind of Cooper Fixum became a little bit of an overused magic bullet. And you're, I think you need to pursue high-end pitching talent that's ready to go and ready to contribute right out of the gate and not just give uh, your pitching coach like six or seven fixer ruptures uh, every season. I, th- I think it's a hard road to hoe and really kind of, overstretches the capabilities of any pitching coach, but I, I think they're, it's at least a weapon that has worked before, but it, it's not something you can just uh, go to the well, especially when there's not going to be a lot of opportunity um, for him to work with a, with a guy because you're dealing with a reduced spring training. So Garrett Crochet made mention that, yes, he would like to be a starter. Is this realistic at this point of his career, and do you believe the timeline fits uh, with where the White Sox are, I guess, and where he is in his career? <sighs> I don't know. Like this was something that when he went down was that this he was supposed to be Copec this or last year's Copec this year and maybe build something in the sixty to eighty inning range as far as an inning base and build off that. I don't see how you can zoom to that next season very easily um, with where he's at. Um, I think it's clear that he wants that and feels like you know biding his time or continuing to work out the bullpen as they need him uh, is no longer getting him to the point where they, they said he would be at this point and that he expected to be working toward the starter. And why, why would he expect anything less from himself? Um, but I, I, it's hard to see how that really logically works out next season with extended outings and where those will come from with a team that you know probably will still need him uh, even if it's working, you know, he throws two, three innings once a week uh, in the majors, they'll, they'll probably need that in some form. Uh, so it, 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 it really seems like a complicated situation for how they work out. I think he's just throwing now. He's back in Chicago this, this weekend uh, with the idea that he was just about to start throwing. So the idea that he would be ready to really kind of make a meaningful step towards starting even by the start of next season, I don't know if he necessarily be cleared to with the general Tommy John rehab somehow take sometimes taking 15 months. It might be hard for him to really be ready at the start of the season uh, next year. 
to contribute, let alone like working extended outings. I think it, it's going to be a very careful buildup of if it plays anything close to the normal patterns. Right. And it's just so it's so hard to carve a path for crochet at this point, because like you said, the White Sox kind of sort of need them. But again, if, if you're going to turn him into a starter, there's no more time to waste. He's going to take time in the minors to get his body right, to be able to start consistently and eventually graduate to the big leagues. But that's going to take at least next year, in my opinion, um, for crochet. So that's that's an update there. James, you've been so kind with your time. Thanks so much for hanging with us on the Future Sox podcast today. I got one question left for you, and I'll let you enjoy the rest of your day off <laughs> before, yay, more White Sox. When it comes to minor league baseball, their players' effort to unionize, I've always been told that this is impossible. Is it possible? <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> I... I guess so. Um, I, I hadn't thought about it a ton of like something that would happen imminently until the news right. broke last night. You know, the one thing I like, um, yeah, man, it, it's, 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 how is it going to necessarily shake out and what conditions is it immediately going to be able to change? Is it all of a sudden standardized more than even just this year's housing policy, uh, to what teams have to do? Um, and what are the effects of it? They're not really being a new CBA for another five years. Um, or does it set up another fight uh, for the next CBA negotiations that's even more complicated and long-lasting than the last one? So I, I, I don't know. It remains to be seen. Uh, you have to ask like Evan Drellick right. or something about that, man. I'm, I'm stumped by this. No, same. I'm trying to figure out some sort of angle that can get me to believe like, okay, well, what is it going to take to make minor league baseball players happy? Obviously the, the baseline salary floor can probably be increased, but major league baseball has to do something about that in the first place. Uh, and like you said, in the next CBA, I mean, major league baseball, the players association don't care about players who are not a part of the MLBPA. You know what I mean? Like they're not really concerned about that thing. Well, yeah, but also if, if the, the price of every minor leaguer goes up, the, mm-hmm. do owners respond to saying like, I only want Project Birmingham's. I only want teams where every guy on there is a guy who might be a potential men age of leaguer and everyone else is getting thrown out. And thus the lower level feeder leagues wind up becoming independent leagues because teams are just not going to employ that many players anymore. What kind of happens? It's all good stuff, James. Really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for jumping on the Future Sox podcast today. My pleasure. Sorry for rambling endlessly. We've had Fegan on a number of times on the Future Sox podcast over the years and he apologizes for rambling when the whole point is for us to listen to what he has to say. It's just kind of funny to me, but just outstanding, outstanding White Sox coverage. What else can you ask for? As I'm thinking about everything, let's think about it. So you have Project Birmingham going on. It's September 1st, essentially, right? We're at the beginning of the final month of the season and the White Sox do play into October, but that's because the regular season drags into October. What's this team going to look like a year from now? I'm not even talking next offseason opening day. I'm talking September 1, 2023. Just something to think about. A lot's going to happen. This I feel it. I feel a lot is about to happen this offseason. We'll see the amount of changes. We'll, we'll see the reaction. We'll see if they make the playoffs. It's not over yet, but boy, does it sure seems like it. And it sure feels like it, at least with roughly 35 games remaining on the slate so I hope you, uh, in, man, just 
Aside from the misery of what's actually happening in front of us, the whole reason why we're fans is to root for the big league club. Everything else is pretty, pretty cool. You know, the White Sox are doing some really fascinating things. And as a baseball fan, I think you should appreciate the strides this organization has taken since let's, let's give it 10 years over the last decade. So credit to the White Sox there. Shame, shame on them for whatever this excuse is of playing baseball for 2022. Hope you enjoyed the episode. A lot of my voice. Thanks so much for sticking to this point. Really appreciate everything that you do for us every Tuesday. James will be back next week. We have more in store. Jim Margulis, by the way, is traveling to Birmingham, or at least that's his plan. So here's a little nugget for you. It's like when you stay past the credits in a movie and you get that justification or whatever you want to call it. Here it is. Margulis is going to Birmingham, uh, hopefully this week. Like, that's his plan. Our plan is to talk to Jim on this podcast at some point following his experience watching Project Birmingham in person. Can't get any better than that. Thanks so much for subscribing, listening, liking, sharing the Future Sox podcast. As always, we'll talk to you all next week.